Well, good evening. Welcome to tonight's uh, debate. I uh, really appreciate you all being here and uh, engaging with this important moment for our nation. Uh, I recognize a lot of you, but for those who don't recognize, I'm Peter Anderson. I'm the pastor here at Destiny Church, and uh, I know you're going to be in for an absolute treat. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Um, because we're, we, we're passionate about our, our country, and we, we feel very blessed to live here, and as, as a church also, we believe in the importance of being uh, informed and being aware and being engaging with the political process. That's the reason we've put on tonight's event, so we we're, we're, appreciate you being here. We also appreciate Nigel and Don being here as well to help make this a success. Uh, to help us be informed for the 18th of September, we've invited these two eminent MSPs to debate. The, the question we're debating is, should Scotland be an independent country? Um, tonight, we have Annabel Goldie. Annabel is representing the Better Together campaign, or the No Thanks campaign and believes that Scotland should remain part of the, the UK. Annabel is an MSP, uh, became the leader of the Scottish Conservatives in the Scottish Parliament in November 2005, and stood down in 2011. She is currently a Conservative MSP, as well as being a member of the Salvation Army and an elder in the Church of Scotland. She's also a member of the National Trust in Scotland, the RSPB, and the Scottish Wildlife Trust. And if that's not enough, Annabel also has interests in the countryside, music, and literature. So a very busy lady. Uh, Nigel Don, on my left, is the SNP MSP for Angus North and Mearns. He and his wife, uh, Wendy, Wendy is here. Where's Wendy? There's Wendy here. Let's show appreciation for Wendy who's here tonight. She'll be stepping in if Nigel runs out of things to say. Uh, they, they currently live in Brecon. After graduating from Cambridge University, Nigel worked as a chemical engineer um, becoming chartered as a chemical engineer in 1982, and his particular interests in the energy, engineering, construction industries. He's also the vice convener for the cross-party group on construction. He also in, uh, serves on the Justice Committee and the Public Petitions Committee. And at one time, he was also a self-employed music teacher and publisher, very keen uh, pianist. But hasn't got hands as big as Rachmaninoff, apparently. We were chatting about this earlier. So uh, would you show your appreciation to, to Nigel and Annabelle for being here tonight? Let's show your appreciation for you. Uh, so the format for the night is this. We're going to give each speaker 10 minutes to give an opening address uh, to make their case for whether Scotland should or should not be an independent uh, part of the, the UK. Each will be then given a five-minute opportunity to give their rebuttal to uh, the opponent's arguments. And then after that, we're going to put questions to the floor. We've got some pre-prepared questions that have come in uh, by people who have emailed, and some of you are going to be reading those out. I will read some of them. And then we're going to, in the middle of that, give opportunity for live questions. So as we're going along, as they're saying things, you might be thinking, oh, I want to respond to that, or I want to ask a bit more about that, or I want to challenge that. Then uh, please take a note of those things, and in the middle, we'll give an opportunity to, uh, for you to, to ask your own questions. And then we will conclude with a three-minute conclusion from both speakers. Now, we were going to toss a coin, uh, but Nigel, being a real gentleman, said, ladies first. And then Annabelle said, actually, I'd rather not go first. So uh, <laughs> Nigel is going to go first. Uh, so would you put your hands together and welcome Nigel as he comes to give his 10-minute opener.
very much, and I'm going to just use a few reasonable words here to make sure that the sound guys know roughly where I'm going to stand and you've got the volumes right. Is that okay? Good. Can I thank you very much for coming out this evening? It threatened to be wet, and at times it was. Hopefully you've got here in the dry, but the car's been washed quite a lot today. Um, can I also take the opportunity of uh, thank you, Peter, for introducing us. Um, I do need to upgrade Wikipedia. Um, actually, that was the last session I was on the Justice Committee. It was an interesting experience. I now convene the Delegated Powers and Law Reform Committee. And if you really want to know what that's about, I'll tell you afterwards. But if you feel you don't, you're probably right. Um, what I'd also like to do is to take the opportunity of just recognizing um, Annabel Goldie's presence here this evening. Clearly, she will speak for herself, and I'm not going to put words into her mouth. But I think as the evening goes by, I may have one or two things to say about the Conservative Party's policies on occasions uh, and the current Tory-led government in the United Kingdom. Some of those may not be particularly complimentary. I hope that will be based on fact, as you'll see. But I would just like to make the point um, that this evening's debate is not going to be conducted like some you may have seen. Uh, there will be no finger-pointing. Uh, there will be no jumping up and down, and there will be no shouting over each other. I absolutely guarantee that, because I won't do it, and I know Annabel won't. And my real point is that I know Annabel as a friend. Um, she was in the Scottish Parliament before I got there. Um, I very quickly established that she was a very sensible, kind lady, one you could talk to, even though she was the other end of the political spectrum, perhaps, from where I, at least in theory, stood. Um, she has been a great friend ever since. And I would also add to the list of things that she does that I know she does also play the piano, though I'm not sure whether she does so in public, but um, I do occasionally. Right, let's get on with the, the substance, because I'm here tonight to take the line which I genuinely believe in, that it would be an extremely good idea if you or I all voted yes on September the 18th because the question is, should Scotland be an independent country? The question is not, could Scotland be an independent country? Firstly, legally, the answer is absolutely yes. Secondly, constitutionally, the answer is absolutely yes because the Edinburgh Agreement set up between uh, the two governments basically says they will do what needs to be done to make that happen. Um, and thirdly, economically, yes, we even have David Cameron saying there is no doubt that Scotland could get on fine. That's not quite the words he said, but that's the point. Uh, could be a successful, I think that is the word he did use, um, independent country. So that's not actually in dispute. The question is, should we be? And that then begs the question, well, why would you want to be? And of course also begs the question, why would you not want to be? Now, again, I'm very conscious that I'm talking in a church to a group of Christian people. And as I've said before on these occasions, I don't think I can open up my Bible. In fact, I actually haven't even brought one with me. I don't think I can open up the Bible and give you any verse or section of Scripture that says the right answer is this or that. There are, of course, plenty of principles in there, but I can see absolutely nothing <coughs> Um, that's going to give us the right answer on the question as it's currently posed. Clearly there are some principles and we'll pick up on a few of those. So then, why would you want to be running your own country? Well, the simple answer is that we like running our own lives and we don't really flourish a great deal if other people are running our lives. Just imagine, however rich or poor you might be, that if the vast majority of your income was taken from you and spent by somebody else, not necessarily in a bad way, 
but it would be their decisions, not yours, how you would feel about your life and your personal responsibility and your personal ambitions. And I think most of us would say, no, hang on, that's not actually what I really want to do. Don't have to assume the person who's spending the money is doing it badly. Don't have to assume that Scotland is being repressed by Westminster because they actually control a very large amount of our budget. They give some of it back and we make some choices about it. But I think most of us would instinctively feel, now, hang on, if I'm bigger, grown up, I should be making my own decisions. And why shouldn't Scotland be doing so is the question we then have to ask. What kind of economy have we got? Money does have quite a lot to do with this. It's based on food and drink. It's based on tourism. It's based on some of the world's best universities, uh, burgeoning life sciences industry. Of course, we've got that oil, which won't last forever, but is a mighty good bonus to have at the moment. We've got a lot of renewable energy resources. We're the most, we've got the most tidal power and, and wind power of any country in Europe. Um, and in many ways, that will replace the oil when it does run out. Um, we're actually a very wealthy nation, and by most calculations, we're actually wealthier than the rest of the UK. So bounce all the money off Hadrian's Wall. Can we cope? The answer is yes. I think the answer is we're marginally better off. Let's not fight about the numbers. The point is we certainly can do it. We'd also have a constitutional advantage. Um, at the moment, there are things that you could talk to me about if I came and knocked on your door. Now, I won't be knocking on your doors because I'm assuming none of you lives in Angus North and the Mearns. Um, but when I go and knock on the doors, I can talk to people reasonably about the health service. I can talk to them about anything the local authority does. But if they want to talk to me about taxation or welfare payments, anything to do with foreign policy, I simply have to say, I hear what you say, but I'm sorry, we don't do that. Just simply don't do that. Westminster does that. If we vote yes and become an independent country, then I and Annabelle and the other 127 MSPs will be answerable to you for all of that, everything. So you will be much nearer to the seat of power and responsibility. The government will be responsible for everything and will be accountable to the Scottish Parliament for everything. Equally, you'll get the government you choose. That is, we as Scotland will get the government we choose. We often don't. The current government position happens to be a slightly extreme one in that sense, but there's one Conservative MP in the whole of Scotland, but actually we have a Conservative-led government in Westminster. Now, that is a bit extreme, but nonetheless that just demonstrates to you what can happen. In independent Scotland, that couldn't happen. One of the arguments that's going to come up, of course, is that the Union's been very good for us. And I'd like to just demonstrate that that's not the case. And I suspect I'm rapidly running out of time. How am I doing? Somebody tell me. Thank you very much. That's helpful. Um, the numbers I'd just like to give you, which I think just simply give the lie to the proposition that the Union's been good for us, are the population statistics for England and Scotland over the 20th century. Now, I'm going to take numbers from 1900 to 2000. So that's 100 years. And it doesn't matter precisely which year you take. There are no breakpoints. There's nothing, there's nothing clever in the argument. Um, and, of course, that's been every shade of government over the period, wartime and peace, all sorts of things. 
the population of England in 1900 was about 30 million, 3-0, whereas in 2000 it was 49 million, plus or minus. And that's an increase over that century of a little over 60%. 63 is the kind of number I come up with. Whereas if you look at the population of Scotland over the same period, it goes from 4.5 million to 5 million. And that's an increase of about 13%. Now, don't want to fight about the numbers, but you can see that 60% and 13% are a very, very long way out. And if you just take absolutely round numbers, then you can, <coughs> you can see that if all the, the, the trends and birth rates and things were roughly comparable, then actually Scotland over that period lost about 2 million people who must have gone somewhere. And the reason why people go is for work. Now, there weren't all 2 million workers, but let's assume half of them went for work and the other half for the family. That's an awful lot of people who had to leave Scotland to find work. And I think that's just the symbol, single biggest demonstration that over a century, the Union really didn't do terribly well for Scotland, and we're still living with the consequences of that. Now, I'm going to be absolutely clear with you, and I'm interested to hear what Annabelle has to say. The Union could work. It's not desperately broken. It isn't impossible to conceive of a world in which the Union is a good thing to have. But historically, it hasn't worked terribly well. At the moment, it's in a pretty poor shape as the Tory government and some of the things that it's doing clearly demonstrate, and maybe we'll come to those later. And it is natural for anybody, any group, and more particularly any country, to want to govern themselves. And that's why I think the natural answer to the question of should Scotland be an independent country is yes. Thank you. Thank you, Nigel. Now we're going to ask Annabel to come and uh, for 10 minutes present her case why she believes that Scotland should remain part of the United Kingdom. Thank you very much indeed, Peter, and good evening, everyone. Can I say what a pleasure it is to join you this evening? Um, Destiny seems a very appropriate title under which to meet uh, as we contemplate a referendum on the 18th of September. So I must thank you for inviting me. And it's also a very great pleasure to share this platform with Nigel Dawn. I have found Nigel to be one of the um, very thoughtful, very reflective contributors to the Scottish Parliament, and we may disagree over areas of policy, and we will probably uh, reflect that tonight, but I know that Nigel never contributes to the proceedings in the Scottish Parliament without careful thought and without having taken the trouble to research what he wants to say, and his contributions, I can honestly say, are a pleasure to listen to you, to listen to rather, which is more than my piano playing, I can tell you, which is done privately and in isolation. Uh, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, this decision on the 18th of uh, September is massive. I doubt if any of us have ever voted in a more important uh, election than this uh, referendum. And, and there are two reasons, because we are deciding the future of Scotland. The second thing is, if we do opt for independence, you know, this is irreversible. It's irrevocable. This isn't like not caring for a government that's been in power, and then when an election comes along, you can vote that one out of power. Uh, this is a very different proposition indeed. And Nigel very eloquently described what this is not about. It's not about can Scotland be independent. Yes, theoretically, Scotland could be independent. It's about what's the better uh, structure for Scotland. Is it independence or is it the partnership of the United Kingdom? Now, I'm very clear that you know, what this is not about and never should be about is who's the better 
uh, Scott, who's the bigger patriot. We care both equally about our country, just as you do. We want the best future we can envisage for it, and we have our different ideas as how to, we ought to achieve that. And, and I would say to you that the choice, quite simply, is between uh, partnership and separation. Uh, it's between the mutual support of the Union, which is the United Kingdom, and the potential vulnerability and the potential isolation of severance, which is the other uh, option. And I want to very briefly, in the time allocated to me, just uh, explain to you why I think this partnership with the United Kingdom actually has served uh, Scotland well. Probably in your lives, all of you have come across partnership in some form. It might have been in your personal circumstances. It might have been in a business context. It might have been in some voluntary or charitable arena. But the great thing about partnership is that you, you do two things. You can um, share the burden of risk together when times are difficult, when times are, are hard. And I think we've evidence of how we've done that within the United Kingdom. Together we fought against and defeated Nazism. Together we have fought against and continue to fight against uh, terrorism. Together we faced the searing combination of bank failures and global recession. A very, a very, very frightening combination. But we shouldered that burden of risk together. We navigated a way through it. And I think that is illustrative of one of the strengths of partnership. But of course the other aspect of partnership is what this union of the United Kingdom gives us. And I think it's worth reflecting on what it does give us. We're a population of over um, 60 million people. In the rest of the UK, we've, we've got this large population who are both friends and customers, customers of our Scottish businesses. Um, we've got a tax-paying base of 30 million people. I think that's very important when it comes to underpinning the funding of public services, whether that's um, our essential services like NHS or justice or education, um, but also when you come to something like pensions. Um, we do know in Scotland we've got a proportionately more sharply aging uh, section of the population than in the rest of the United Kingdom, and that will certainly present any government with a challenge as to how you fund the pensions of this more um, uh, prominent element of our population. As part of the United Kingdom, we've also, of course, got a global reach, a global influence. I, I do think that matters. If this age is anything, ladies and gentlemen, it is a global age, this 21st century. You only have to look at your televisions each day to realize what is happening in other parts of the world, events which are frightening, events from which we are not immune. And I think with the global influence which we do have as part of the United Kingdom, we are fortunate to be plugged into that international arena with other democratic allies, and we have influence, we have clout, we have authority. We have that in various platforms, whether it's the permanent uh, membership of the United Nations Security Council, one of the five permanent members of the UK, whether it's being part of the G7 and G8 groups of countries, which are very influential in trying to determine how to address really important pressing issues worldwide and how the wealthier countries in the world can make some intelligent and constructive response to these challenges. Whether it's as part of NATO, where we are a prominent authority, whether it's as one of the three leading powers in the EU, along with France and Germany, which, which the UK um, is. There is global reach in all of that. There is global influence. 
there's a significant strategic defense capability, not something we would ever want to use or feel we had to use, but we do know from history it's important to have it. And certainly with the United Kingdom, we've got one of the biggest defense capabilities in the world. And I think in an uncertain age, that does matter. I think it is important. And I think we've seen evidence um, where that can be used to good effect. There have obviously been controversial occasions like the Iraq war, and I accept that and understand that. But there are other occasions, I think, where people have felt very relieved that the United Kingdom has been able to step in and assist and help people who have been vulnerable, um, without protection, and without help from any other obvious source. And of course, very importantly, we have a currency. It's called a pound. It's a currency which we know about, we don't have to think about. It's established, it's uh, proven, it's got a good track record, and it is uh, stable. And I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that when I look at that construct of partnership, I do find in its strength, I find stability, I find security. And when I look at the case for separation, um, I have to say to you that I find... Uh, a lot of unanswered questions, and I find very obvious areas of um, risk. Now, I'm not going to rubbish the independence ideal. I'm not. It's a laudable, worthy ideal. It's a perfectly respectable dream to have. All I would say is that dreams don't pay bills. Dreams are not enough. Rosé vision is not enough. Um, even Alex Salmon's capacity to churn out words faster than Usain Bolt can sprint is not enough because... We actually need to pin down substantive facts. And I find that very difficult to do with a separation prospectus because when I ask about currency, I don't know what it's going to be. When I ask about joining the EU, I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know what conditions of membership will attach to it. Um, when I ask about uh, how many defence jobs we lost in Scotland, because we know many will go, nobody can tell me how many. When I ask how we will cope in an independent Scotland with a significant budget deficit, proportionately a bigger budget deficit in relation to GDP than the rest of the UK, that worries me. It worries me in conjunction with no idea about currency, because that actually comes right home to roost and affects all of you in your everyday lives. It affects you in terms of your interest rates for your mortgage, uh, your interest rates and your other borrowings. It affects you in terms of the public services you depend on and how we fund them. Because with a continuing budget deficit, and nobody disputes that will happen, some painful decisions are going to have to be taken. And either that's cutting expenditure, public expenditure, or raising taxes, or perhaps doing both. A very uncomfortable scenario. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, um, I have to say to you that when I contrast the two prospectuses, if you like, the two proposals on offer, I find in one, and I'm not pretending it's perfect, I'm not, but I find in the case of partnership, I do find things that I know about, things that I understand, and things that give Scotland a strength and a stability and a security. I also find in that a Scottish Parliament, which is working well, will get more powers and needs more powers to work better. And I think that Scottish Parliament does, regardless of whichever party is in government, the Scottish Parliament does look after our distinctive Scottish traditions, our distinctive Scottish institutions, our distinctive Scottish um, structures and processes. And it does that, in my opinion, well. We may disagree about the detail of policy, but it does that well. And I do think we have the best of both worlds. And I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, for that reason... I would like to look ahead to a safe, stable 
secure future for Scotland, a future where we can enjoy the strength of the United Kingdom, but very much do our own thing with a powerful Scottish Parliament. And I will urge you to vote no on the 18th of September. And uh, Nigel will give a five-minute rebuttal to, to Annabelle's comments. Right. Um, I was going to say, you, I, I may not be going to repeat anything. Please, <clears throat> yeah. Um, Annabelle rightly says this is an irreversible decision. I, I wouldn't dispute that. You will have watched the Commonwealth Games. Once upon a time, that would have been called the Empire Games. I have yet to hear of an independent country that has left the Empire that wants to go back to British rule. I'm not expecting to find it. We like our independence. Of course, this is about mutual support, but I'm not expecting my sisters and the rest of their families down in England to suddenly decide that I'm an exile. The reality is that across the border, we are going to provide mutual support. We always have done. Yes, we have cooperated over wars. You're absolutely right. I have no doubt we would do the South again. I just happened to think that if we'd been separate at the time of the Iraq War, the Scots Army would not have been there. I think we actually knew better. Equally, Annabelle made the comment about bank failures. That's a very fair question, until, uh, and, 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 and it is a fair question. The answer, however, lies to the fact that actually where a bank fails, its debts lie where they were actually uh, accrued. And it was the risky banking that was done in London, which is what brought the banks down not the high street banking which was done from Scotland and actually those debts would have fallen on London and they fell elsewhere including North America so it wasn't just our problem just because they were called Scottish banks um, pensions is a very interesting question but it was answered by the UK pensions minister in Parliament I think in May he made the point that your pensions are absolutely safe you've got a, effectively a contract with the, with the British government you've paid your money and they'll pay you and they'd pay you in an independent Scotland the same as they would pay you in France or anywhere else, if you just happen to emigrate, okay? It really doesn't matter. The Global H is interesting. I'm not sure that I'm terribly worried about being part of the UN and the G8, but maybe that's important to some folk. Um, the rest of the UK certainly will be, and I'm sure it will exercise that influence appropriately. The EU is a very interesting one, which we must nail now. We're not rejoining the EU. We don't need to. You and I are European citizens. It is inconceivable, it's just constitutionally impossible for the UK Parliament to decide that because in Scotland's going to be independent, suddenly its, its, its members, its citizens, stop being EU members. Okay? It doesn't have the power to do that. Now, Europe's treaties don't understand how to deal with that, but Europe's very good at muddling through. It's inconceivable that a Scot working in France suddenly becomes an enemy alien because the UK Parliament's decided he's no longer in the EU. Absolute nonsense. It's inconceivable that those Spanish trawlers don't want to come and fish in Scottish water. They will find a way of dealing with it, but above all, the European courts are not going to stop you and me being citizens. Uh, UK forces, yes. I would actually quite like the Scottish Parliament to be, and the Scottish Government to be deciding what the Scottish forces do to say. I think some clear examples in Iraq is one where we wouldn't have followed other people. I'm equally clear that we would be cooperative on some. Uh, NATO, yeah, it's important. Get your globe out when you go back home, and you'll realize that the, top, the channel at the north of the Atlantic, which is a lot narrower than you might think from seeing the flat one, okay, runs from Norway to, Norway to Scotland to Faroes, which is actually part of Denmark for practical purposes, to 
Iceland to Greenland. That's strategically hugely important. It is inconceivable. They are all members of NATO. It is inconceivable that NATO would not want us to be hooked into the intelligence, to the radar, and to the aerial um, defense systems. They will need to make it work. Absolutely inconceivable they wouldn't want us. Nuclear powers uh, weapons are therefore not relevant in that context, and incidentally, they're a strategic nonsense. Uh, more powers for the Scottish Parliament? Well, Alistair Darling couldn't name one on Monday, you may note. He also pointed out, of course, we can use the pound sterling. He actually said so in as many words. Um, whether or not we get a fiscal pact is a debatable point. Actually, I don't think it's even remotely unlikely that we won't for reasons hopefully I'll get to explain later. Ask me about the pound and we'll get back to it. Uh, David Cameron, I think today or was it yesterday, said, well, of course, that, you know, they'll get some more powers uh, sometime soon. Um, it's three weeks to the election, and you know that's hardly a manifesto, is it? He hasn't a clue what those powers will be. He's making it up as he goes along, and he's actually, unfortunately, far more worried about people defecting to UKIP than he is about what's going on in Scotland. Perhaps one of the reasons why he's not here. I think that deals with pretty much everything. Oh, the comment about the, the, the deficit. Um, First of all, Standard & Poor's said Scotland's uh, credit rating is absolutely fine. I think you find it's actually better than the UK's, particularly if they decide to leave Europe. The banks might well come back here, actually, or, or Ireland and leave London, because um, they won't want to be operating outside of Europe. And there's, yeah, thank you. And this last sentence, there's an awful lot of businesses out there who are actually saying, look, independence would be fine. They wouldn't be doing that if they felt the numbers really didn't add up. And uh, Annabelle, to give her rebuttal to Nigel's first comments. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, Nigel gave a very eloquent exposition, as I fully expected he would, of why he sees advantage in a separate Scotland and why he sees disadvantages in the partnership, which I've been describing. Now, one of the things he mentioned was uh, being governed uh, by other people. He said we're governed by other people. And, and I want to challenge that proposition, ladies and gentlemen, because if you find merit in the partnership, and we know from the opinion polls many people do find merit in the partnership, they do accept you're not always going to get the government you want. So, for example, in my case, for 13 years, there was a Labour government at Westminster. It will not surprise you to learn I neither wanted it nor voted for it. But that didn't make me want to reject the United Kingdom. And in Scotland, of the four main political parties, three of these parties, Labour, Conservative and Liberal Democrats, have all variously governed at Westminster, either on their own or in coalition at some point. The only party, of course, which hasn't done that is the SNP. So I would question this concept of you only, you know, you govern the people you vote for. Um, Nigel also questioned the concept of mutual support, and he said that will continue. But again, I have to challenge that. You see, the mutual support that we get within the United Kingdom, which is stitched into it, that's what the United Kingdom is. It's a union. It's a social, it's an economic, it's a political union. We move freely, we trade freely. As I said earlier, we have friends and customers. But if we're independent, the rest of the United Kingdom becomes a foreign country. There's nothing startling about that. That's the international definition and law of what that would be. And I have to say to you that I think at that point the dynamic changes. I think the rest of the United Kingdom will say, well, good luck to Scotland. You've made your decision. We wish you well. Now we'll get on with our own show and do what we think is best for us. And I think that could well mean 
that um, the rest of the United Kingdom would genuinely be looking at where it wants to um, source trade, where it wants to source customers. And we may be part of that, but to the same extent, I think that's highly questionable. Um, Nigel also mentioned the EU, and this is interesting because while there's some opinion that the Yes campaign's position of never coming out and just always being in um, is supported. There's some opinion to support that. I have to tell you that overwhelmingly the other opinion is, no, you will have to join and you'll have to negotiate. And I could give you a whole list of authorities and countries and uh, members of the EU who have um, held that position and believe that we are going to have to negotiate whatever the terms of admission would be for an independent Scotland. And what I don't know is we enjoy, for example, at the moment a very generous rebate uh, that helps the UK and Scotland benefits from that rebate. It is pretty clear from the comments of some of the other EU countries we would be lucky to keep that rebate if we're going in as an independent Scotland. We also enjoy exemption from... Um, um, Schengen, that's the, uh, the open borders. borders. Because we're an island, we've been allowed to retain borders, have checkpoints. It helps with security. It helps with um, uh, dealing with um, improper uh, admissions to the country. If we join as an independent Scotland, we may be told, um, no, 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 you can't put up borders. You have to be an open-ended country. Now, that's fine, and we may have no particular problem with that, but the rest of the UK will have a problem with that, and they will insist almost certainly on putting up their borders. So there is going to be a change to this, the dynamic of this um, relationship. On the currency, on wealth, um, Nigel very skillfully sort of navigated his way around the currency issue, point is we don't know what it's going to be. The best we've managed to squeeze out of Alex Salmond is we're probably going to use the pound. But let's be quite clear about this. Using the pound as a trading currency is absolutely not the same as having your own currency propped up by a central bank. And in fairness, one of the members of the Yes campaign, Patrick Harvey, who's leader of the Green Party, I think has taken a very honest position to this. He has said, no, he said that's not acceptable the best thing to, be, to do would be to have our own currency. Now, again, there's risk in that, and I don't want to go down that road, but I think there is a, an honesty and an intellectual rigor about holding that position, and I respect Patrick for having the courage to say that. Uh, Dennis Canavan, also a lead member of the S campaign, has the same view. Um, on the um, question of... NATO, I saw very recently, the Secretary General of NATO said, no, an independent Scotland wouldn't just come in. An independent Scotland would have to apply to get in, and it would be a question then of determination as to whether um, that would happen. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, I think there are a number of important points. More will come out in the debate. But again, I would say that the, the independence case is not standing up to, to examination and to scrutiny. Now, we've had various questions submitted uh, from members of the church and other people, and I'm going to read some of them out. Some of them will be read by uh, members of the, the, the attendees today, and also then after that we're going to give space for people to ask live questions. So as I say, if you have a live question, uh, jot them down and, and we'll give you opportunity to share that. So the first question comes to, to Nigel Don, and you may have already touched on this, Nigel. When Scotland's bank... Um, Scotland's banks, the Royal Bank of Scotland and the Bank of Scotland collapsed in 2008. The entire UK signed that cheque that kept the branches open and money in our ATMs. Smaller countries like Ireland and Iceland 
could not do this. They got shafted by the EU as a result. Why should we cut ourselves off from London and put ourselves in such a vulnerable situation given that the similar financial crisis could easily reoccur? Thank you. Um, Yes, I have touched on it, but of course the question is the other way around. If you do sensible banking, which is borrowing money from people, paying them a low interest rate, lending it to somebody else who's a decent customer, getting a slightly higher interest rate off them, we've all been there, and the difference is your profit and the asset base is gradually built up and that's what banking is all about. If you do that sensibly, which was done in Scotland, uh, you don't have a problem. That didn't go bust. If you take those assets and what you think is your balance sheet and what you can effectively borrow against the balance sheet that you've currently got of the assets that you think you've got and somebody else will let you borrow against that and then you gamble with that in any shape or form uh, and those guesses go wrong, then you can send the bank bankrupt. Now, that's essentially what happened. The bit that did that was in London. The liability is in London, and it was in London. An independent Scotland would not have had to be rescued because the RBS and Bank of Scotland bits in Edinburgh weren't doing that. Now, even to the extent that they might have been an independent Scotland, I mean, I'm, I, at this point I have a vision of John Swinney. You can all visualise John Swinney. I mean, the man of prudence. Now, as long as John, and there are others like him, of course, is, is responsible for back Scottish banking, then the answers could be, you're not going to do that. You're just not going to do that. We're going to do banking properly. And the reason why the banks went pear-shaped was because control and scrutiny over the banks was light touch, light enough that we go away and have a G&T and we'll let the banks get on with it. And so it's actually not only about what kind of banking you do, but also about how you supervise it. Now, I can't stop London from carrying on doing what it's doing. The inside track is that they haven't learned very much but they're still doing it, not us. So, I'm sorry, the question is really the wrong way around. Why would you want to be stuck with London, who are still doing that kind of thing? Wouldn't it be better if we actually had banks in Scotland properly supervised doing what banks really should be doing, which is lending money to promote businesses and individuals rather than gambling with the assets which they may or may not actually have? Annabelle, would you like to respond to that briefly? Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. My recollection is that the United Kingdom government had to produce, I think it was £50 billion to prop up the Royal Bank and the Bank of Scotland. That's a massive amount of money. But then it had to do more than that to ensure that the banks <clears throat> were able to go on doing the business we need them to do of lending, which is essential both for people on a domestic basis who need loans and want to borrow money or run overdrafts, but also for businesses who needed to continue to borrow to run their businesses to fund new investment. The banks had to know that if the risk went bad, somebody would underwrite that. Otherwise, the banks would go down again. So the UK government stepped in with a guarantee package of £500 billion. Now, that is a colossal amount of money. And I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I find uh, Nigel's confidence in the uh, stability of banks in an independent Scotland very touching. But I have to say to you, that didn't help Ireland and it didn't help Iceland both of them um, endured the seeding pain of their banks failing as, as well. And I think the whole point is that banking by its nature is complex. And if we want a functioning bank in an independent Scotland, it has to be a bank that is able to take 
the appropriate personal lending and commercial lending decisions. Otherwise, it's going to be no use as a bank. And when a bank engages in that activity, there is inevitably a degree of risk, a degree of risk which uh, is partly related to the ability of the bank to gather in reserves from somewhere and have a buffer against failure, but it's partly related to the ability of government for whatever it is a central bank, to be operating public finances in a way which can let government, if necessary, underpin any difficulty that the banking sector might encounter. Now, I just say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I saw very recently that the head of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, one of the biggest banks in the world, he was very, very doubtful about the wisdom of an independent Scotland in relation to uh, banking activity. Annabelle, and uh, if you stay standing, Annabelle, I've got a question for you now. So uh, the question for you is, Scotland was, is, is governed from Westminster by parties we did not elect in Scotland. I think there's only one Conservative MP in Scotland. I don't know if that's right or not. This, this is what's been written. Uh, but we have a Conservative UK government. How can this be right? Well, as I said earlier, um, it is the case that there is only one Conservative MP from Scotland. Um, but the, the issue is a bigger one. The issue is whether you find strength and stability in the partnership, which is the United Kingdom. Because obviously the shape of the United Kingdom means that Scotland is a smaller country geographically in terms of population. Wales is a smaller country in terms of geography and population, as is Northern Ireland. Uh, and the bigger part of it is England, obviously. But it's interesting that <clears throat> the partnership is something that many, many people find merit in, they find it offers strength, they find it offers stability, they find it lets them share things, and they accept that that means in terms of democracy, sometimes you've got the government at Westminster that you want, sometimes you won't. As I illustrated, I had a Labour government for 13 years, I didn't seek that, I didn't vote for it, but it never ever made me want to tear up the United Kingdom. So my argument is that in terms of the uh, main parties in Scotland, as I described earlier, with the exception of the SNP, all the main parties in Scotland have at some time governed from Westminster. And I think people accept that is part of the democratic flow of sometimes the party you want in government will be there, sometimes it, it won't. But I don't think in any way that is a, a, a pivotal or essential component of whether or not we want the partnership. Um, if the partnership appeals to people, and it does to many, many people, then they will take the democratic consequences of sometimes getting a government they want, sometimes they, they don't. Thanks, Annabelle. And Nigel, do you have a comment to make? Yes, could I, could I just come back to that? I mean, Manuel makes a perfectly fair point, which at one level is rather difficult to deal with, but I would simply look around the UK and point out that a lot of other people see it roughly the same way as we do. Um, if you were to go to Northern Ireland, most of those who are elected represent Irish parties. Um, equally, there are lots of folk in Wales who will vote for a Welsh party rather than for the UK parties. And therefore, there is an England centre, and in Italy, it's by, by far the biggest part, of course, of the UK, to the Conservative, Labour, and Lib Dem parties. Um, the other thing that we have is a kind of political culture, and this is something where I think we do perhaps need to pick up. Um, it doesn't really matter whether what we have now is a Conservative or a Labour government, because they do all seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet. 
dreadful phrase in, particularly in this context, um, but you know what I mean, about how we deal with the current economic situation. The word austerity has come into our newspapers in ways that it hasn't done for a generation. Um, and they all seem to be signed up to the idea that we simply spend less money. And at the moment, they all seem to be signed up to the idea that the people who pay the price are the poor. Um, and, and we're going to have to get onto this somehow or other. You know, I come from a constituency where I've got four food banks in my main towns. I've got folk, and I'm sure you've got them in Edinburgh. I'm sure, and I'm sure you, you, you kind of know about this, actually. There are folk who simply cannot feed themselves. The fridge is empty if it indeed even works because electricity might not be working when it's that bad. Um, and they simply are, most of them, there as a consequence of the way welfare benefits are being changed. Now, it's a policy decision as to how you change welfare, and I think Annabelle and I would have to agree that you know, something has to be done. Um, things needed to be sorted out so that it didn't cost that much. But actually, the current UK government has just screwed up the system. And that's why a very large number of people are going to food banks. Now, if that was being done in Scotland, the Scottish Parliament was responsible for that. Annabelle and I would be on our hind legs in that Parliament, and frankly, it would be sorted. It isn't being sorted by the UK government, and this is where I'm going to be very rude about the current government, but not about Annabelle. They don't seem to care. Now... I would like that kind of thing to be a responsibility of the Scottish Parliament simply because I think you and I, you would make sure that I and Annabelle sorted it out for you. Westminster does seem not to care and to be too far away and simply to ignore what our MPs say. That probably does it. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. Um, so a question from the floor. Uh, Ernie Douglas has, a, has, a, has the first question. And if, um, if Ian can bring the microphone to you there, Ernie. And this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this question is from a Christian viewpoint, and it's for Nigel. It's for Annabel Goldie and Nigel Dawn. Uh, many Christians are concerned that the promotion of a modern form of equality often means the promotion of anything that is not Christian. Last year, a Christian couple in England were taken to court because they would not allow homosexuality to take place on their B&B premises. We are now at a point in Scotland when speaking about faith at work could lose a person's job. What reassurance can you give Christians today that Scotland, regardless of the result on 18th September, will always be a place where committed Christians will be free to say and believe what they think, regardless of whether this offends other people. Surely the power to offend is the essence of free speech. Okay, thanks, Ernie. Um, so I don't know who would like to answer that first. Yeah. I think that's a, a very important question. Um, I don't think it's an easy one to answer, and I say that as a Christian. I think on the one hand, we live in a society where we do want to see fairness, we do want to see equality, we do want to see an absence of prejudice, we do want to see an absence of hatred, of sectarianism, of um, um, ostracization because of people's um, background, Christian beliefs, religious beliefs, full stop, or sexuality. And certainly, 
that's the kind of society I want to see. And I think, I suspect Nigel wants to see that, you know, as well. And I realize that there are some people who find that um, difficult and they may have other views and they may feel... Um, they may feel isolated because they want to express views and, and that is not permitted uh, under civil law. I think on the one hand that we can encompass, we can embrace this fair and equal society which we all want to see. And I, I, can, um, I can envisage a way of, of a Scotland, whether we vote yes or no, being able to do that. Where I have a very real concern is the general attitude to faith in our country. We should enjoy, because it's enshrined in law, freedom of religious expression. We should enjoy religious tolerance. We should enjoy the right to practice our worship as we want to. And I don't know about you, but I get very angry when I read of some decision taken, as I did, and I remember this quite clearly, that Bibles were going to be removed from halls of residence, um, bedside tables. And the reason for Bibles being removed was because people who weren't of a Christian faith might be offended. And my attitude was, well, I am of a Christian faith, and the removal of that Bible offends me. So where is the mutual respect? And I think that at times political correctness has triumphed and that is wrong. And I think it needs people like us and people like Nigel and myself who are Christians and who regard our faith as not just part of our life but absolutely fundamental and pivotal to our lives to be prepared to say when these ludicrous situations arise, this is not good enough. And certainly I am aware in the Parliament, and I'm sure Nigel is too, there is an unrelenting secular pressure. There is an absolutely persistent pressure that everything should be approached and viewed from the perspective of non-belief. And I like to think that Scotland is a country of faith. Certainly, traditionally, Scotland is a country of Christian faith, but we enjoy very harmonious and constructive relationships with all the other communities of faith. And the members of these communities of faith are making a tremendously important and positive contribution to our Scottish life and our Scottish communities. And I just feel that if freedom of religion and freedom of religious practice and tolerance means that we can be true to our Christian faith and practice that, and not have to feel apologetic or stand to one side, then I think there should be a presumption that actually we are doing something that is very important to us, and we believe in something which is very important to our communities and to our country, and that those who have no belief are entitled to that position. But why should they take their position of no belief and seek to impose that on us because we happen to have a belief? So I think we want to see a greater, a greater manifestation of tolerance. I think we want to see a greater recognition that as members of our churches, uh, whether we are Christians or whether we are members of other communities of faith, we make a very important 
and a very significant and a very positive contribution to life in Scotland. And I would like to see that much, much more universally acknowledged. Thank you. Um, Nigel, if you'd like to comment on the same question. Yeah, thank you. Um, just to add to everything that Annabelle said, um, guarantees are rather difficult to come by, but the European Convention of Human Rights, which is part of our law, um, does put freedom of religion in there, in the list. I think I'm probably not the only one, though, who feels that it may be somewhere further down the list than some of the other things that trouble us. It's not supposed to be. They are all supposed to be equal, but necessarily courts occasionally have to decide the order, and it always seems to be that religion comes a little bit lower than we would like. Um, can I just pick up on, on what the questioner said? And I'm not disagreeing with you. I just want to be clear that we perhaps understand the word. The English language is absolutely wonderful. You, you said that the power to offend is, I think, freedom of speech. And, and, and I would agree with you in the context in which you said that. But, of course, um, I don't think freedom of speech includes the power to deliberately offend. And I'm sure that's not what you meant. Um, so it is very definitely the power to disagree the opportunity to disagree as part of freedom of speech, and I'm absolutely with you there. I don't think that's going to go away. Um, but there are, of course, folk out there who don't want to be disagreed with. Um, and I saw in my local paper, The Courier, that there was um, somebody decided to, to throw an, an egg at a speaker for Annabelle's side of this debate in, in was it in Dundee? No, it was in Gikodi, I think. Um, doesn't really matter. And I've got to say, well, you know, sorry, don't do that. That's not what this is about. This is about democracy. We're not doing this at the point of the gun or, or the end of an, of, a, of an egg. But there are folk out there who just don't want to be disagreed with. Uh, and you can't guarantee that they won't do stupid things. You, what we ought to be able to guarantee, particularly under the European Convention on Human Rights, is that in law we are protected and we are entitled to hold our own views and we are entitled to express them reasonably. What is reasonable is always a matter of law and it comes down to the, to the circumstances. Um, but I think that guarantee, at least as a matter of law, is there. But, you know, the other thing which speaks volumes for Christian faith is what we do, isn't it? Um, and that's not actually what we do on a Sunday morning, though, you know, the Lord values that, and, and we all know that. But I'm very conscious, for example, that there are street pastors at the weekends, the late night and early mornings on the streets of Aberdeen. I have a suspicion there might be some in Edinburgh as well. Yeah, there are. It's just that uh, yeah, Aberdeen happened to be the place where I met them and, and spoke with them. That's a very powerful Christian witness, not only to those with whom they deal directly, but to the entire establishment. The police know who the street pastors are. It's a fabulous witness to an awful lot of the rest of our society, including many influential people that that kind of thing happens. And so, you know, feeding the, feeding the, the, um, the hungry and, and looking after the poor is part of what Jesus gave us to do. And that is actually part of our very real testament to the society around us. Um, that's probably all. Thanks, Nigel and Annabelle. That's very good answers. Uh, it's interesting the secular society has officially backed the, the yes um, campaign. It's, it's one of the one of the points I noticed on on Care Scotland, because uh, they have a vision for a secular Scotland, um, which, but they're they're one group of many groups which have a vision for Scotland. Uh, it's very interesting, and no throwing eggs. We have snipers in the balcony who will take you out if you try. 
Okay, um, so next question is coming from Neil Leslie. Uh, Ian is the microphone. Where is Neil? There's Neil. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say thanks for the way that this has been conducted. I've never been to anything like this before, but it really seems quite sensible and mature, so, so thanks for that. <laughs> um, this is a question that's directed uh, to Nigel, uh, first of all. As part of the UK, we receive a share of taxes from economic powerhouses such as London, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds and Liverpool. This helps to pay for benefits, NHS and social securities. If you go to the Republic of Ireland, for example, they will pay 60 euros to be seen by a doctor. If an ambulance turns up, you'll be invoiced for it. The idea of free prescriptions is an anomaly. Why should we lose all this by breaking from the UK? Thanks, Neil. Um, so, Annabelle, do you want to answer that first? Or Nigel, would you like to answer the first? <laughs> um, thank you, Neil. I'm going to tell you something that you probably will be surprised at. We pay marginally more to them than they give us back. We pay marginally more tax per head than the rest of the UK. So those things that you're talking about, let's just talk about free prescriptions, for example, is a policy choice which we in Scotland, the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Government has made about the bit that we are responsible for. The, UK, the rest of the UK could have chosen to do that. It didn't. That, we're not being subsidised by them. We're just spending our money in a different way. And that takes you straight back, and me straight back, to the whole point about independence. We can make some of those choices. We can make them in terms of free personal care for the elderly, in terms of free prescriptions and other things. Now, you could come up with some points about how the Scottish Government sorts out its budget which I would defend, and you could actually come up with some that I might struggle to defend. So please don't. But those are policy choices. Now, we could spend all evening talking about policy choices, but actually we'll probably not to, I think, because the point is not what those policy choices are, because that's what we decide in the next election or the election after that. The issue is are we going to make those policy choices about everything in an independent Scotland or in the ones which they give us the power to deal with? But actually, we pay for ourselves. It isn't a problem. We're not being subsidised by them. Annabelle, would you like to respond? My peppermint, which I was sucking. Uh, forgive me. Um, just to pick up at the end of Nigel's point, and, and, and thank you for your observation about the way we're trying to conduct the debate. There's no pressure then, Nigel, to uh, try and preserve, preserve accord and amity. But... Let's try and keep this simple. Um, the figures we have, the figures we, we know about in terms of what Scotland sends to the Treasury in terms of revenues and what it gets back from the UK Treasury in terms of expenditure. We know that for 2012-13, we uh, got back 12 billion more than we actually gave. Now, that's a, a budget deficit, and that's okay. We also know that in 20 of the 21 last years, Scotland's been in budget deficit. And there was a very interesting document that the Scottish Government prepared to try and help it to look at the issues that would confront us if we decided to be independent. And very revealing in that document was the observation 
um, by the civil servants that um, Scotland has been in budget deficit for 20 of the 21 last years and that um, the money, the extra money we've got back over and above what we've given um, has been very rightly deployed to our public services. Um, so there is an issue, there undoubtedly is an issue about the uh, robustness of the finances of a, of a Scotland that's independent. I mean, if you look at the white paper, and you'll all be familiar with the white paper, and that was the Scottish Government's uh, hefty publication. Ah, Nigel's going to, I hope he doesn't throw it at you, or you'll be rendered unconscious, but there it is. In that white paper, at page 75, you get, you get the one illustration that was presented to illustrate what the finances of an independent Scotland would be like. Quite curious that only one page was devoted to this. It's one year of independence, 1617. What wasn't surprising was it was a budget deficit. Nobody doubted that there would be anything other than a budget deficit. What was surprising was how small the budget deficit was stated. Now, the reason for that was that income was overestimated and expenditure was understated, okay? And John Swinney, Swinney to his credit, recognized that that needed to be adjusted. And a couple of months ago, John Swinney produced revised oil revenue figures. And he said, right, I've reined back a bit from where I was in the white paper, which from memory had revenues for that first year of independence, oil revenues of somewhere between uh, 6.8 and 7.9 billion pounds. Well, he's reined that back now to 6.9 for year one of independence and just over seven, I think, for year two of independence. Difficulty is that the Scottish government's own economic advisor doesn't agree with these figures. And he said, no, I think it's about two billion less than that. And of course, that's been supported by Sir Ian Wood's recent intervention. So there is a fundamental uncertainty here about <clears throat> the true extent of a budget deficit in an independent Scotland. Does that matter? Yes, of course it matters, because somehow or other an independent Scotland then has to work out how does it uh, deal with that budget deficit. You can't go on accumulating a budget deficit year in and year out. You've got to have some means of addressing it. You have to go to the international money markets to borrow money to help you to fund your public services. That's what an independent Scotland would have to do. That becomes extremely difficult if you don't have a stable currency underpinned by a central bank. And going to um, some of Nigel's earlier remarks about welfare, in this mighty tome, there's a lot of narrative about welfare, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find one penny devoted to what the additional welfare provision would be. So I can accept my political opponents may want to criticize my party in relation to welfare provision. They're entitled to do that. But I've been unable to find the costings for what the different improved welfare provision in an independent Scotland would be. Now, the only thing to say is, whatever it is, it is more public expenditure being added on to an existing and unquantified budget deficit. So there is a very real issue in there. At the moment, with the partnership structure, we can pan out some of that and have been panning it out. And Scotland's been able to enjoy high spending on her public services over the last 21 years. In fact, it's averaging out at about £1,200 per head of population in Scotland more than people in the rest of the UK. Now, you know, I think that's what partnership is about, and I think that's a very positive feature of partnership.
Before we go back to more questions, I, I just want to ask one question, actually. Uh, it's something I hear people saying to me often, um, and it's something, certainly, that I have a dilemma with. What we hear from both sides is a set of figures, and they're saying entirely different things. And so we, we've just witnessed that just there. Um, so Nigel has presented a set of figures saying uh, we're contributing more, and uh, Annabelle has presented a set of figures that says that we're being propped up financially. Um, so do you guys want to just talk about that? And I'll sit back here. It's fact, Peter. You can Google. You can go and look at the last set of accounts for Scotland for 2012-13. And there is a £12 billion budget deficit. That is the amount by which we got more spent in us up here than we contributed. That's fact. Yeah. And the national debt is carrying on and going up for the whole of the UK. And it's currently £1.2 I think. 60% of which has turned out in the last eight years or sorry I don't remember the numbers but most of the national debt a subsizable chunk of the national debt appeared very recently okay um, yes we are operating in a deficit budget and what you have to do is to get the economy to a point where you start repaying that um, UK government's failing to do that despite its best endeavours I won't be too critical about that um, and the Scottish has, government has to do precisely the same. Um, I don't really want to trade the numbers. The point is we would take our share. But that does then bring us, I wonder whether we could just pick up on this fiscal pact stuff because I think it, it, it is sort of current and maybe just needs to be discussed. Um, what currency would we use? I think, to be fair, that's nailed as of Alistair Darwin's Monday night comment, of course you can use the pound. The debate then is under what circumstances do you use the pound? The preferred option, and Alex Salmond's been absolutely clear about this, and I think the economists have been absolutely clear about it, is in some kind of fiscal union whereby we stay with the Bank of England. The Bank of England uh, underwrites our debts, takes in everything that's going, uh, puts everything onto the balance sheet, put all the income and expenditure onto its profit and loss account, um, and generally runs the whole show. Of course, the... the uh, no thanks, uh, Better Together campaign would argue that's currently where we are and that's the best answer and I think that's absolutely, you know, it's a perfectly fair argument. Um, so if you separate out Scotland in, in the context of tax and welfare payments and tax in the context of the budget and leave the bank to sort out all the, um, all the interest rate stuff, that's actually simply giving a little bit back to the bank in terms of sovereignty, which you don't necessarily want to control anyway. But... If they won't let us be in that fiscal pact, and this is to come back to something that's been discussed a few times, it goes a bit like this. If you run a bank, then you get your mates to give you some money. As I said before, you lend it to other people. They give you an interest rate. You run a bank, so other people give you more money. You lend it to other people. If your guesses are right, and you pay slightly less to the people who, who give it to you and, slight, and charge slightly more for the people who owe it to you, in interest, then you make a profit and eventually you build up some assets. And, and the profit goes to the shareholders. In other words, the people who put in the money in the first place. And we're currently in the situation where Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland are all shareholders in the Bank of England, which is really misnamed. It really should be called the Pound of Pound, Bank of Pound Sterling or something like that. Now, if the rest of the UK, after independence, won't let us stay in that position, and I think it is their choice, I would have to accept that, then effectively what they're saying to Scotland is, look, you stop being a shareholder, but you can have a current account. Now, that's less than ideal, but we keep the assets. 
But the real point is that the assets, like the oil in the North Sea, and it's just like that because there are plenty of others, stop being shareholders' assets, and they become our assets, the account holders. And the interest payments which the shareholder would have had to bear on the liabilities of the bank stop having to be paid as well. Now, what that means, and sorry if I've already lost you, what that means is that if the UK government, after we've become independent, says we can't actually work with the Bank of England as we are now, then they're taking away our share of the national debt, which the Scottish government in this white paper is absolutely clear we should take and we'd want to pay for, and they'd be presenting us with about a couple of thousand pounds each. No, it's 20,000, isn't it? Pounds ahead. In terms of debts taken away. And they become responsible for the whole liability of the national debt. Now, it's precisely because they're not prepared to do that. They wouldn't even consider doing that, actually, that come September the 19th, the whole of this is going to go away. Of course there will be a fiscal pact, because nobody in England is going to want to let us go away without paying our share of the national debt, and we would ought to be paying it. And really that's why all of that's going to vanish in three weeks' time. And it's a myth to say that we won't work together. Which is why it's also, can I just pick up on... No, I won't pick it up, sorry. Okay, let's, let's uh, throw it open to a live question. So, uh, let's... Uh, this uh, question is for Nigel Don mostly, and it's picking up the question you had about uh, wanting to see a fairer society, and that's a major part of the SNP narrative. In an independent Scotland, and how would you actually be able to go about that that you are not able to do so now? The answer is to make our society fairer. I'm quite prepared for the moment to adopt the model taken by Wilkinson and Pickett in the spirit level. Does that mean anything to anybody? Anybody read the Pickett level? Spirit level. Well, the person who's asked the question has, so that, that's a immediately a help. But I will answer it in a way that other people can get a chance of. Right. This is a book written not many years ago by some folk who were able to look at research across the developed world of how society worked depending on the difference between the lowest incomes and the highest incomes in that society. Now, of course, they had to work out how they were going to measure that. They did that. And they were able to look at countries across the developed world, the whole of Europe and other developed countries across the world. And they were also able to look at data across individual states of the United States, which are big enough to give you the, some changes and also some results. Okay? Why hadn't this been done before? Because the data really didn't exist, as I say. I think this was about 2009, perhaps it was first written, something like that. And it's an analysis of a huge amount of reliable and reasonably consistent data. Now, what they demonstrate across absolutely everything that you care to look at is that society functions better when it is more equal in the sense that there is a smaller ratio between those who are wealthiest and those who are poorest. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the crime rate or the teenage pregnancy rate or independent assessments of happiness or absolutely anything else. And please, you know, buy it, read it. There are graphs in here for almost anything that you can think of and a few things you wouldn't have thought of. But across all the data, it's not just one graph, there are dozens of them, 
they demonstrate society functions better when we're more equal. That, as Christians, should not surprise us. Now, how do you do that? Well, in a sense, it's very, very simple. What you do is that you make sure that those who are poorest in your society, and this does come back to pounds, shillings, and pence, so it's very simplest, is that welfare payments are structured in such a way that they are all adequately looked after. Now, how you do that is a difficult question. Okay, and there's lots of, you know, people will have to be quite pleasure to make sure that they get the right way of doing that, and I'm not sure the current government is doing so. And what you also then have to do is to say, look, people who are earning an absolute fortune should be paying more tax. One way or another, should be paying more tax. Now, are they going to want to do that? Well, until they've read this, no. Once they've read it, and if they manage to read it with open eyes, the answer will be yes. Because actually, the world is a better place for absolutely everybody on the data, including the richest, actually, remarkably, if we are more equal. Why, for example, if there's less crime, we all live in a better society, in a happier and healthier and safer society, if there is less crime. And that includes the wealthiest. Happiness, therefore, actually goes up, including the wealthiest. It's a remarkable paradigm. It's a remarkable book. But I think that gives you a clue as to what you do. But some of the, some of the measures, sorry, one of the, the things you have to do, sorry, the measures you have to take, are, are straightforward. And they're to do with welfare payments and how you structure that and pay them and to do with taxation. And you will notice that those are things we currently do not do. And that's why independence matters. We can't do the simple things to stick to that kind of model because we do not have those variables within our control. There's a question I've got here actually that um, it's a similar vein. Maybe uh, Annabelle could answer this. Alex Salmon says that food banks uh, are, are the same, uh, sorry, are a shame on Scotland. I'm a bit concerned that the Yes campaign is painting a utopian vision of how Scotland's going to be if it gets independence. Uh, can you comment on how independence will affect poverty in Scotland? In a sense, that, that question, Peter, lets me, I think, perhaps comment on your question and also comment on Nigel's um, response. And I don't think there's a cigarette paper between the kind of society that Nigel and I want to see. There's a fairly significant chasm between how we respectively think we arrive at that destination. I mean, in terms of the kind of society we'd like to see in Scotland, and this is a philosophical observation, I've been very struck by the, um, the implication that somehow Scotland has a monopoly of compassion or a monopoly of caring about people who are facing challenges or a monopoly about how to deal with social policy. My impression is that people the length and breadth of the United Kingdom are conjoined in their desire to improve standards of living, are conjoined in their desire to try and lift people out of poverty, give people more opportunity. And one of my concerns about an independent Scotland is, because I listened to Nigel's exposition of how currency might work, and I, I don't agree with him. I mean, there, there is one way that Alex Salmon can guarantee a currency union with the rest of the United Kingdom. He'll have to be Prime Minister of the rest of the United Kingdom. 
Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is the only way he is going to get a currency union. And the reason he's not going to get a currency union if we vote for independence is not just because the three leaders of the main political parties who will be in government uh, in Westminster governing the rest of the United Kingdom, not just because they've said there won't be a currency union, it's because every bit of banking and treasury advice to politicians south of the border is it will not be in the best interest of the rest of the United Kingdom to enter into a currency union. And I refer to the chairman of the um, Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. He said it wouldn't be in the rest of the United Kingdom interest to do that. He said, absolutely not. It's not going to happen. Now, this leads me to a difficulty that comes right to the heart of your question. If an independent Scotland launches a good ship independence and sets off on a voyage, but the first thing it has done, because Alex Salmon has said quite um, uh, explicitly, if we don't get a currency union, we don't take our share of the debt. Well, that's fine. That, that's up to him. The rest of the United Kingdom has said, well, we'll just have to bear with that. Uh, we'll cope. But what about an independent Scotland? We don't have a stable currency. We're going to the international monetary markets. And the first thing we say is, we haven't got a good credit record. We've defaulted on a share of debt that really, in law, fell to us to deal with. Now, that, to me, begins to raise massive questions about um, interest rates, about our ability to run a stable economy. And the best thing we can do to help people out of poverty is to create work. At the moment, ladies and gentlemen, in Scotland, I'm happy to tell you, employment is steadily rising. Unemployment is steadily falling. More people are getting into work. And that, thankfully, includes people who have been in welfare provision for many, many years. Now, to me, one of the best ways of helping people is to try and create the economic ingredients to give them a chance to make their decisions about trying to uh, improve their position and have a sense of future and a sense of ownership about their future. And I have to say to you that in the pure finances of an independent Scotland, I see very, very big challenges. And I do not see how, if we are struggling to pay our essential public services, like our justice system, our health system, our education, how we fund local government, how on earth are we going to find better welfare provision Particularly when, as I said earlier, you won't find a penny of cost allocated to welfare in the very big white book. We share the same aspiration, Nigel and I. Of course we do. But we have very different views about how you actively, positively, and constructively do try and make life better for those who so desperately do need a way forward in their lives. Take two more questions from the floor, just uh, one, one, one after the other. So, uh, across here, Ed. Okay, sorry. Hello. Um, just going to wrestle him for the microphone there. Um, this is a question actually for Annabelle. I, I'd also like to kind of, uh, also kind of second, uh, really enjoying the way this is being conducted. Thank you very much for coming along this evening. It's much appreciated. I uh, just pick on something Annabelle said, just about the issue about pensions. Scotland's got an aging population and high in an independent Scotland would be able to kind of essentially pay for the, uh, the pensions and obviously the increased kind of burden on the health service that would come with that. Um, obviously a quick way of doing that or a shot in the arm would be to allow more immigration because immigrants statistically are younger uh, and they put more into the system uh, than they, they take out and also more kids as well. So you've got the 
demographic dividend as well as the uh, kind of increased money going into the, the tax pot. Is that not in of itself an argument for having more control over, over immigration, which you could get through independence? Thanks, Ed. And it's a question over there as well. Just we'll have two questions. There was, there was another question. Was yeah. My question is a slightly different take on your question, Ed. With regards to immigration at the moment, there are a lot of us who are not UK citizens. So this is more for Nigel. What happens if Scotland becomes independent? What hoops then do we need to jump through? Where are we? You know, are we going to be in limbo and so on? Okay, two excellent questions. I'll start with Annabelle. Thank you. If I take the first question, I think immigration has actually been a very positive contrib contributor to the Scottish economy and to our society. And there's not a shadow of a doubt that our skills need in our economy would not have been addressed without the input from many of the uh, immigrate, immigrating population who've come here. And that's, that's great. That's fine. The practical dilemma is this. We saw some recent figures for the levels of immigration into Scotland. And the people coming are not actually enough to um, contribute to this increased economic activity that we would certainly need to generate if we were to start expanding GDP and start expanding revenues into the economy, which would be essential in an independent Scotland. So there is a very real practical issue about where these people would come from. The other um, aspect of this that we can't disregard, yes, I mean, we could have our own attitude to immigration in independent Scotland, but if the rest of the UK has got a different attitude, that, of course, is another reason why they're going to insist on border controls, because they will not want an open border into the rest of the UK. And that does raise significant issues about our freedom of movement um, from what was once an entirely uninterrupted passage, you know, Scotland to England to Northern Ireland to Wales, wherever. So it does raise that issue. Um, on the second question from the lady in the, towards the back of the room there, I'm going to let Nigel deal with it. What I'm not going to do is scaremonger. Um, I think it is the case that people who are here at the moment um, on some uh, basis, perhaps it's visa basis or perhaps it's um, uh, an agreed period of stay, um, although they may not be citizens of the United Kingdom, then something would have to be done in an independent Scotland to to address that and make sure that people, I presume, had some stability of, of residency here. And I'm not saying that couldn't be done. It would be quite wrong to say it couldn't be done. But there are other issues um, about what happens to UK passport holders. Uh, do they retain their UK passports? Uh, do they retain them for a while? What happens to their children and their grandchildren? There's going to have to be some transition point, um, either to Scottish passports, and in the case of people who are here on visa or other, you know, permit stays, what happens? Are they given some reassurance that they can continue to be here? I'm not the one advocating independence. I can't answer your question, but Mr. Don, I know, will address it with his aplomb and skill that we expect of him. Yeah, all of that. Um, thank you, Annabelle. Yes, okay. Um, to, I don't think to disagree with too much of what Annabelle said. Um, yes, we do need some immigration. It's actually, by and large, very good. Um, 
If the UK government hadn't changed the rules on graduates staying, I suspect we'd have been in a rather better place. And I think you'll find that an independent Scotland would probably want to ensure that graduates who came here could stay here and work here. Um, it does seem to be a crazy policy to say they can't stay around and they go away. They, are, they do have the skills and all the demographic uh, advantages that have been referred to. I think if you are of any non-UK nationality, that the answer is quite straightforwardly. No UK government would want to mess you around, I don't think, and certainly no Scottish government would want to mess you around. The basic principle has got to be that everything changes, but nothing changes. It has got to be that the Scottish government honours whatever you contract, if you like, whatever position you have with the UK government when we become independent. Um, and if your visa says you can be here for three and a half years, then you can be here for three and a half years is undoubtedly what the answer would be. Um, the issue of UK passports is actually quite an interesting one because I had to, had to address this for a constituent who was good enough to ask me about it. Um, at the end of the day, of course, if you have a UK passport, you are entitled to keep a UK passport. Um, and as long as the rest of the UK, as it would become, is happy for you to remain a UK citizen, that's up to them. Um, an independent Scotland would obviously issue its own passports after a while, and there's no earthly reason why you shouldn't hold both. But your British passport is not for us. You know, it wouldn't be in our gift. It would be the British, the rest of the UK's gift. Uh, I would refer you, probably, to the Bahamas Act of 1990. 73, which was the most recent act of independence that I could find. Not only did it say, of course, that those residents of the Bahamas who held British passports could carry on to do so, but it actually specifically said that people who were there who could have got a British passport because of parentage um, would still be entitled to get so. So the most recent precedent that I'm aware of says that you don't lose any of those rights to a British passport. Uh, but ultimately, that's in the gift of, of the British, you know, the rest of the British state, because that's the way it would have to be. Um, yeah, when it comes to differences in immigration policy between Scotland and the rest of England, I think we can rather over-dramatise that. I'm not sure there's going to be anything terribly different. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that there are an awful lot of ways of getting into the UK, particularly, I think, through the Republic of Ireland there, what's done in practice and what's done on paper might turn out to be somewhat different at the moment. Um, politics is always totally pragmatic. I'm just wondering if I could just go back to something else, though, that was um, relevant. Oh, yes, okay. Could I just, could I just go back to the point about, um, uh, about how we make our society more equal? Because I thought Annabelle made a very fair point. Of course, one of the ways of making more equal is actually to get people into work, and I'm not going to dispute that for one instant, and that's really a very important thing. Far better to get people in productive work than to be paying them not to be working. I mean, absolutely with that. But could I also just come back to the point that I made, of course, that if you're going to, to do more for the poorer, then you have to do something um, to, to get the, the, the relatively better off to pay that. That doesn't mean that you tax them more. There's all sorts of ways of skinning the cat. Um, and there's, there's all manner of ways of making sure that those who can contribute more might do so through all the taxation and revenue processes. Um, so don't you immediately assume that, that you know, that means that sort of income tax is going to have to go up because it might not. There are other ways of doing it. And again, that has to be thought through so that the consequences are actually sensible and achieve what you really want them to achieve. And that's not something you snap your fingers and a politician can tell you how to do it. 
I can't believe we're already at nine o'clock. So uh, we're just going to wrap this up. I'm going to ask one last question that's been submitted, and then I'm going to get, after that I'm going to hand over to both um, MSPs to give their concluding three-minute um, presentations. Uh, the last question is, uh, I, I guess, comes in the back of the last debate between Alex Salmond and, and Alistair Darling, where the criticism of the No Thanks campaign was they lacked um, a, a dream and a vision for what it, Scotland would look like being part of something, whereas Alex Salmond's um, people felt that he was presenting a vision for what Scotland could be like as an independent, as independent nation. So the, the question is, Martin Luther King had a dream. What is your vision for Scotland's future? And I uh, address that to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. I have to say, perhaps unlike the majority of people in Scotland, I didn't see this debate because I had to attend another event in Edinburgh as it happened. I did get feedback, Nigel. I was told it was two shouty men shouting at and over one another, and I was, frankly, rather relieved perhaps I was at another event in Edinburgh. Um, I have a vision for Scotland where, having spent my whole life in Scotland, born, educated, um, worked here all my life, privileged to serve in the Scottish Parliament, privileged to be there since 1999. I have a vision where the things that are distinctive and precious to me in this country, and they are different, there are many aspects of our country different to the rest of the United Kingdom. I have a vision where we can nurture these things, um, regard them as distinctive, regard them as pressure, sustain them, develop them, and do that within the Scottish Parliament as part of our devolution settlement. But I also have a vision whereby, with our population of 5 million and our small land mass, we continue to punch above our weight. We continue to punch above our weight because we are in this partnership which gives us a platform, it gives us an arena which, with the best will in the world, no matter how well we were led in independent Scotland, we would not be able to replicate. And I think that's an exciting future for Scotland, a Scotland where we look outward, not inward, a Scotland where we are part of this global age, playing our role in it, making our contribution to it, and able to do that because we are within the United Kingdom. To me, that's an exciting future for Scotland, an exciting future for our young people. And I have to say, Peter, I've been quite struck. I've been doing a lot of school debates, and I've been looking at the... There's a website, and you can find it for yourself, where they have tracked the sort of mock referenda in schools, and they've tracked the mock referenda in our universities. Overwhelmingly, young people are rejecting independence. I have to ask, why is that? Why is it? And I think, ladies and gentlemen, the answer is because in their lives, they deal in the global world. With social media, with IT contact, the global world is their immediate neighbor. And this is a time when they're wanting to remain contacted, plugged into part of that. They want to be able to reach out, enjoy that global span. And they can see a way of doing that, of, of utilizing and deploying these opportunities. And they see that possible by being within the United Kingdom and yet still retaining their precious Scottishness and still relying on the Scottish Parliament, as I say, to look at our distinctive institutions, uh, processes and traditions. So that is my vision for an exciting, dynamic Scotland. We're our own shields and our own backyard, but we're still part of something bigger plugged into that global world and carrying clout and authority in it. Thank you, Annabel, and uh, same, same question to Nigel. Thank you, Peter. 
Um, yeah, I think you've actually heard the answer. I'm, I'm, I'm repeating and I'm reluctant to do so, but I, I think I will. My vision of, of Scotland is one where we do take personal national responsibility for what's important to us. I said right at the beginning that the union could work. It hasn't. It still isn't. But it could. But if it hasn't over centuries and it isn't doing much for the equality that I think we really do need in our country just at the moment, then why should I expect it to do so any time too soon, particularly when the current set of leaders have absolutely no idea how to deal with that? So I find myself saying my vision of Scotland is in many ways exactly the same as Annabelle's, except that the way to achieve that is for us to take responsibility for our own decisions. It's not going to be a land of milk and honey, although we do produce milk and we could produce more honey and we do need more bees and we actually need to look after the bees, which incidentally is part of the point because actually it's difficult and it's hard work. Even looking after our bees is actually hard work, but that's a rural affairs committee, which perhaps I'd better leave for another day, but it really genuinely does matter. But why aren't we going to be responsible for making all those decisions about how we conduct ourselves internally as a nation and how we conduct ourselves in the world? Why do we have to let somebody else do it? Now, if we were not poor enough, or sorry, rich enough to look after ourselves, I would understand that. If we were not bright enough look after ourselves, that would be a point. But as both of those are manifestly not the case, why on earth do we not want to grow up as a nation and do what normal nations do? And I'll point you just to one thing that we have done very recently. Because you will know within your lifetimes we introduced a ban on smoking in public places. It's enormously improved our health. It subsequently happened in the rest of the UK. I'm not sure how fast it might have happened in the whole of the UK had we not been able to legislate ourselves. But there's another one following it, because Scottish Parliament's already decided that it wants to introduce a minimum price for alcohol for the same kind of public health reasons. Well, well documented. It's absolutely no doubt that it's the right thing to do. The UK said it would follow, and then under pressure from businesses, as seems to have decided that it won't. Now, it hasn't got into effective law yet up here because it's still being challenged through the courts by the industry which understands it's going to lose some money, and it's quite right it is. We're going to drink less alcohol, we're going to make less money. And when we drink less alcohol, we're actually going to be better off. But we've led the way, and I'm absolutely sure if we'd left it to the whole of the UK to deal with that, it would never have happened, not in our lifetime. They know they should be doing it, they're just buckling to the pressure not to do it. Maybe they will someday. So we're already punching above our weight. We can actually do things in Scotland that lead the UK, never mind the rest of the world. And you will know we invented most of the technology in the world. So my vision is that we carry on doing what we've done before. We carry on being the inventive, creative, extraordinarily capable people that we are, having supplied more than our share of British Prime Ministers, incidentally. But we actually take full responsibility for what we do. And then, actually, we just have to do the hard work. But we're quite used to doing that. That's not a difficult thing to do. But at least we will see the outcomes of that. And we'll be able to make the changes that follow when we get it wrong, because we will. 
and actually as a nation we're beginning to grow up and actually be responsible for what we do that's my vision Nigel okay so and and now we're going to uh, have our concluding comments and just as Nigel started at the beginning Nigel, if you could stand up again and give us right. your, your, your three-minute concluding My comments. My three-minute concluding remarks. Have uh, I not just said it? Um, what, what am I going to do? I'll tell you what I am going to do. I'm just going to go back quickly through my notes and see what have I not actually dealt with. Uh, and in no particular order, probably the reverse in which they came up. Uh, Annabel made the comment <coughs> about um, if we weren't in a fiscal pact, then we would have defaulted on our, on our payments, and then you'd go to the money markets, and they'd say to you, just defaulted. I don't see how you default if the person to whom you owe the money has said, we, don't let you, we won't let you pay it. It's no longer your debt. I mean, that's the position we'll be in. The UK government has already said to the money markets, much earlier this year, if it wasn't last year, look, we're responsible for the whole national debt. Well, they actually said so quite clearly on the record. If they won't let us pay our share, that's not us defaulting. Please don't be fooled by that. Um, and everything that the Scottish Government has put in, the, in, in Scotland's future says, of course, we should be paying our share. That's actually what it's about. But if you're not going to let us, so be it. Um, I'd also make the point that, come back to the, to the assets of Scotland. We have a hugely diverse economy. I mentioned before the, the rural economy, farming tourism. Those are assets which are inherently Scottish. They are quite literally part of the soil and consistent with the soil under our feet. Go walk, you know, that's your Scotland. That's actually quite a strong economy. We are marginally richer than the rest of the UK, but let's not fight about the numbers. But the things that Scotland does really well can't be taken away. The things that the UK does really well are many and varied, but the powerhouse, despite comments about Birmingham, Manchester and the other places, and nothing against them, and I've worked in some of them, um, the powerhouse is the City of London. And I would leave you with the thought that the City of London could all decamp to Hamburg, or lots of other places. Okay? Simply moving money around is something you can do in hyperspace. It doesn't have to be done in London. Now, I am not trying to spook you. I am not trying to paint a picture whereby everybody decants from London. It wouldn't happen quickly, even if it ever were to happen. But when you've got the economy rooted in your country, then you're a good place. And I do reiterate that if the rest of the UK, or the UK, if we're still in it, decides it's leaving Europe, then all of those banks and financial institutions may well want to move. Okay, let me come back to some absolute basics and, and, and wind up by repeating again. Nobody who's left the, common, the empire yet and become part of the Commonwealth has wanted to go back. Yes, it's irreversible, but countries far poorer than us like self-determination. Yes, we can use the pound. Alistair Darling said so on Monday. It's a tradable currency. I'm sorry, I'm still going to disagree with Annabelle. The rest of the UK will want our assets and our balance of trade. Okay. Um, so those bits of scaremongering are, I'm afraid, really not appropriate, but you'll have to take my word for it versus theirs. We'll find out on September the 17th. I still reiterate, this is where I close, we could and should be responsible for how our country is, read, is, is run. Annabelle and I would be very pleased as MSPs to do that if you give us the powers, and to do so you have to vote yes in three weeks' time. And uh, Annabel, your concluding comments. Thank you. 
thank you, Peter. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a good debate, and I've enjoyed it, and I hope you have too, and I hope you've had the opportunity of seeing a genuine exchange of views and uh, exposition of different positions. I'm going to go back to what I started by saying to you at the very beginning. This is a choice which, if it's independence, is irreversible. It's massive, and it's irrevocable. And I think if that is the case, we have to be sure beyond doubt before we take this decision that there can be no risk, no uncertainty, no unanswered questions. Because I would argue what we have at the moment is good. I think we have a partnership which is strong. I think it allows all of us in our different parts of the United Kingdom and our different uh, nations within the uh, UK to move freely, to trade freely, uh, to enjoy our family of nations, and to do that in a very constructive way, whether that's from the point of view of economy, whether it's from the point of view of social mobility, whether it's from the point of view of feeling a sense of uh, belonging to something which is strong and stable and secure. And I would say to you that when I look at the alternative, and, and despite Nigel's best efforts, I still have a range of unanswered questions. And these questions are so fundamental that I think it makes the independence case a risk too far. I cannot approach the 18th of September, be asked to choose between partnership and separation when the separation argument cannot tell me my currency, cannot tell me how they'll deal with continuing budget deficit, which is going to be more acute for Scotland than the rest of the UK in terms of proportion to GDP, cannot tell me if we'll have a central bank, cannot tell me what our interest rates will be, cannot tell me the stability of funding to underpin our essential public services. These are massive issues, ladies and gentlemen. And I have likened all this to you being invited to put your life savings on a 100 to 1 outsider with a limp on the 330 air. And you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. So I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, theoretically, independence could happen. Theoretically, Scotland could be independent. But when I compare that prospect with what I know of the partnership I've got at the moment, including the currency, including how the economy functions in the different parts of the UK, including how in aggregate the UK is greater than some of the parts, I have to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I think we have the best of both worlds. We have a strong Scottish Parliament, which is going to get more powers. And I sat in my party's commission, the Strathclyde Commission, which spelt out what we thought the it's additional fine. powers should be. So, ladies and gentlemen... I'm saying no thanks to risk and uncertainty on the 18th of September, and I am voting no to stay in the United Kingdom. Um, I hope tonight has been a helpful experience for all of you here. Sorry we couldn't have time to answer all the questions that came in and maybe the questions that you had uh, to ask live really appreciate you folks making the effort to be here tonight. Uh, we, we, we encourage, as a church, everyone to engage with this process. I want to thank Ian, uh, Ian Stewart, for pulling off this event. Let's hear it for Ian. Thank you, Ian. And for making sure that no one got the microphone and for making sure that everyone stuck to their time. So I, I appreciate that, Ian. 
Uh, I also want to thank uh, Nigel and Annabelle for not only being here tonight, but also the, the, the hard work they're both putting in just now for the sake of all of us. Um, these guys often don't get thanked for the work they do. Often what they hear is negative comment and criticism. Such, sadly, is many people's attitudes toward leadership. We greatly value what you do. We appreciate the hard work and sacrifice you make. This is because you have a passion to make uh, things better in our country and um, hopefully make a difference with our life. So we, we really greatly appreciate that, and we appreciate the time you've put in and the interactions you've given us tonight. So let's show our appreciation for these two MSPs. So on the 18th of September, make your vote count. Please, every single one of you do vote. Uh, and also encourage your friends and your families to engage with the debate and encourage them to vote as well. If you want to know any more information about Destiny Church, um, you're welcome to look on the information desk at the back there or our website, destinyedinburgh.com. Thanks so much for coming. God bless.